This is an emergency of our democracy where for the first time in our history, the Supreme Court overturned a precedent in a way that strips Americans of fundamental rights. His actions were nothing short of heroic. Um, he engaged the, the gunman from quite a distance with a handgun, and as he moved to uh, close in on the suspect, he was also motioning for people to exit behind him. Hold on. The election was over. So why not say that? A lot of people are going to look at that and say, what is the difficulty in admitting that the election is over? It is. You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top story served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The January 6th committee held its final hearing in primetime Thursday night, focusing on the 187 minutes insurrectionists attacked the Capitol in hopes of overturning the 2020 election. Matthew Schneider, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan under Donald Trump with Guy Gordon. President Trump did not fail to act during the 187 minutes between leaving the ellipse and telling the mob to go home. He chose not to act. Again, that's Adam Kissinger, Republican from Illinois. We welcome in Matthew Schneider, the former U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, now with Hannah Law. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, Guy. Hope you're doing well at Boyne. Uh, we have, well, it's a little windy up here. I'm glad I'm not playing golf, but uh, at, at least for the moment. I got to tell you, it was uh, it was an interesting coda, if you will, or an interesting closing argument from the January 6th committee, this primetime hearing that they held last night. And it's a good time to kind of check where we are with this. We've once again heard from Trump aides, former loyalists who begged him to take action. Uh, texts from people as diverse as Sean Hannity and Donald Trump Jr. insisting uh, that he had to do something. And we've heard from Liz Cheney and others saying that this was willful and deliberate. Okay. From a legal standpoint, how will that be viewed at the DOJ? So you've correctly identified that the whole point of this last hearing was really to talk about what did President Trump do or what did he fail to do during this time? After the time he spoke on the ellipse and then the time when he sent out a tweet saying everybody go home, what happened in that three hours and seven minutes? And some people are arguing, look, he didn't do anything. He didn't do enough. or He deliberately stalled. And that's a dereliction of duty. As far as a legal matter goes, well, there's no dereliction of duty federal crime, right? <laughs> President Thank Trump's you. a federal officer, right? That's, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, you know, for, for comparison, Governor Snyder is being charged with a form of dereliction of duty, or he has been charged with that in the Flint cases for failing to take action. But, you know, that's a state issue. This is not, uh, we're not talking about a state issue here. We're talking about a federal official and the, the proper remedy here is to impeach somebody. Well, you can't impeach Trump. He's already out of office. So then the question is, well, what are we doing here? What, what is the point of this now, and where do we go forward next? So I guess uh, you just asked the next question. If you were watching this, if you were tasked by Attorney General Merrick Garland to look at this case, what did we learn last night about the inactivity during those 187 minutes that might be actionable in a criminal charge? Well, on that aspect, it's not actionable for dereliction. There's no statute that fits that on the federal platform. And then you have to add, you have to lay another layer on this of, okay, we heard this from the committee, and we heard one side. It's like the prosecution gave an opening statement. 
There's been no cross-examination. There's no defense examination. There's a whole other aspect here that we were missing in this hearing, which is unlike the Watergate hearings, right? In Watergate, they took testimony on both sides, and then they produced something. They produced an article of impeachment. And then, you know, after September 11, they took hearings. And what did they do after that? They passed the Patriot Act. Here, they've taken the testimony, they've given some hearings, and what is the result? We haven't seen that, and it's not entirely clear. Yeah, it was interesting. We know that um, today on Truth Social, the former president's defenders were citing Pentagon memos uh, saying that he had requested the National Guard there uh, not to protect uh, the Capitol from the protesters, but to protect the protesters. Uh, and Acting Defense Secretary Chris Miller actually testified to that a year ago before a House Oversight Committee. But we didn't hear that. Would that mitigate anything? Because he certainly didn't do anything for those 180 when he could have called the National Guard. He didn't. He, couldn't, he didn't call the Pentagon. He called, according to the testimony last night, nobody other than senators trying to overturn the election. Right. And as a legal matter, the question is, is, what was his duty? Did he have any legal duty? I think you'd argue yes. that he didn't. And there's a lot of things that he could have done, right? He could have called police officers directly. He could have done a million different things. But now we're second guessing that under the criminal statutes. And so far, I'm just not seeing it. I mean, we did learn a lot in, in the hearing because there was a video of uh, President Trump practicing his remarks on January 7th. And well, as the remarks were written, they're a little bit different from how they came out. I want to ask you about that. Hold on one second, because I want our, our, our listeners to hear this in case they didn't see it yesterday. Uh, that, uh, President Trump recorded on teleprompter um, the, uh, the, the January 7th address that was supposed to condemn this. Here's how it went. Cut to. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say... Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? But Congress is certified. Now Congress is Yeah, right. Now Congress is I didn't say over, so let, let me see. He also balked at saying that uh, protesters would be criminally charged, those that engaged in criminal activity. Um, what is the value of that? I mean, it was a compelling piece. He seemed tortured uh, in terms of delivering that, but it was very subjective. Right. I mean, look, he could have said that if he had wanted to. You can look at this two ways. In one hand, he, he can say whatever he wants. Maybe he wants to give a very concise speech. Fine. On the other hand, hold on. The election was over. So why not say that? What's the objection to saying that? It, a lot of people are going to look at that and say, what is the difficulty in admitting that the election is over? It is. And he apparently didn't want to say that. And I, a lot of people are raising questions about that today. Andy Levin and Rashida Tlaib were among a number of congressional Democrats arrested on Tuesday for protesting the overturning of Roe v.ersus Wade in front of the Supreme Court. Congressman Levin used his one phone call to appear on All Talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz. It was definitely not a stunt. Um, I, the way you frame it is interesting. Uh, Y'all, I've been arrested multiple times over my life. Uh, engaging in civil disobedience for things I believe in, uh, for workers' freedom to form unions, to protect the wilderness, uh, to protect women's autonomy over their own bodies yesterday. And um, it was, you know, we were arrested, and I'm going to go down and pay my fine and go down to the, you have to go in person uh, to the police headquarters. And uh, we, 
this is an emergency of our democracy where for the first time in our history, the Supreme Court overturned a precedent in a way that strips Americans of fundamental rights. Of course, they've reversed precedents in the past, but they've never done it to take away a fundamental right like this. And I'm absolutely willing to put my body on the line to protest that. And I'm following in the footsteps, and we all were, of our hero and late colleague, John Lewis, who said it's important to get in good trouble. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy about what we did, and I think you'll see a lot more of it in the months ahead. Can you compare and contrast uh, why your protesting was the right thing to do yesterday and what Donald Trump did on January 6th to protest election results was the wrong thing to do, if you think it was? That's an obscene thing to say. On January 6th, there was a violent insurrection at our Capitol. People died. People came. Police were pepper sprayed, beaten. Wow. No, the pro- Donald that Trump didn't do no, well, well, Donald Trump didn't do that. Donald Trump protested the election Donald results. Trump, have in you a been speech. watching the hearing? Yeah. Have you been watching the hearing? Donald Trump called a mob to Washington. He planned a violent insurrection. He said Let, we, will, we must not have magnetometers because people with weapons need to be able to come in and then march on the Capitol. Um, Donald Trump tried to overturn our democracy. And the idea that you want to compare that to the amazing tradition of civil disobedience that led to women's suffrage in this country, that led to gay people being able to get treatment for AIDS in this country, that led to people being able to marry who they want in this country, that led to black people being able to vote in this country is really something. <laughs> yeah, he, he was just asking how would you compare and contrast. I think that's what Kevin was asking. Well, and I, you did, did I guess so, I, just, so, I just did, yes. Yeah, I that's did. what you did. That's what he asked you to do. Uh, so you were charged yesterday with, with with crowding or obstructing a street. You know, $50 fine, you said you're going to go and pay that. Uh, you were supporting the chance of our bodies, our choice, and hands off our bodies. Those types of phrases. You also joined in on the chanting of shut it down. What were you referencing there when you said shut it down? I'm not I'm not even sure. I don't remember all the chants that were made, but um, so I, okay. I if you don't remember, I don't that's really fine. have a good answer. That was on the video <laughs> that was was uh, shortly after you were arrested, and it said "shut it down." We were wondering what that was you're referring to. I want to ask you this because you are vocal about this, and you have said that you're vocal about abortion rights. And when you were speaking up regarding abortion rights. In your debate with Haley Stevens, she said, quote, was that the sound of another 60-something-year-old white man telling me how to talk about choice? She cited your age, she cited your gender, and she cited your race, all which she implied disqualifies you from talking about abortion. Do you agree with that? No, I I don't know what to say about that. It kind of landed with a thud. It sounded like a pre-planned kind of thing to say. I, I don't know. I... I think everyone, it's, it, we're all duty-bound to fight for the, the rights of everyone. I mean, I'm, you know, a leader in the Congress of, on fighting for the rights of Uyghurs um, in, in China and uh, for fighting for the rights of uh, minority peoples in Burma and India and human rights in Egypt. Um, I'm not any of those <laughs> 
nationalities or ethnicities. Um, I, I believe that human rights are universal. And as a person of faith, I think all, I believe everyone's created in God's image and we're yeah. all precious. And so I fight for uh, women's autonomy over their own bodies and their own decisions because I just think it's, it's the right thing to do. The House of Representatives passed a bill to protect same-sex marriage on the heels of Roe vs. Wade being overturned and some ominous language in Justice Clarence Thomas's written remarks on the case. In the House, the bill received multiple yes votes from Republicans and could be gaining momentum in the Senate. Jared Halpern, Fox News correspondent and WJR contributor on The Guy Gordon Show. Yeah, there were um, almost four dozen House Republicans who voted for this. And you're right. What this does is it it rescinds the Defense of Marriage Act. And the Defense of Marriage Act was ruled unconstitutional years ago by the U.S. Supreme Court. But what you have seen particularly Democrats do now in the aftermath of the Hobbs decision, the abortion ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade, is say we need to start codifying these protections, these rights in the federal law, because we don't know what the Supreme Court may take uh, a move on next. And, and they point to that um, uh, separate uh, opinion, the concurrence from uh, Justice uh, Thomas, in which he talked about uh, potentially uh, re- taking another look at things like Obergefell and, and uh, a contraception ruling from decades ago. And so that's what's behind this. You're right. This doesn't create sort of a new policy, but it would put in the federal law something that the Supreme Court has already done and limit the Supreme Court's ability to sort of undo it. Right. Yeah. And so that's that's what is, is sort of at play here. Um, and you're right. There were about four dozen Republicans who, who voted for this. Many of them are Republicans from swingier <clears throat> kind of suburban districts, right, where the social issues um generally are, are, are more agreed upon than maybe some of the fiscal issues, right? But we're um, talking but, some far-right peoples, uh, Jared, like uh, Elise well, Stefanik I mean, and, and Scott so, Perry, who have people who say, were so, in the Freedom so, Caucus. And some of them um, are from states like Elise Stefanik uh, in New York that have already codified this in their state constitutions. So it's right? a safe vote, so, right? <clears throat> correct. And so that's part of it, too. Now, also, uh, Stefanik has been supportive of many of these gay rights in votes past, if you look at her voting record. Um, she was, I think, the only member of House leadership who voted with this. But House leadership said that they didn't take a stand on it. They did not whip this. Mm-hmm. They didn't urge members to vote one way or another. They left this open uh, for their members to vote as they will. And that's why it's getting some traction now. Um, you know, you, you look at sort of how uh, the Senate is shaping up, right? And the Senate... Um, is in a position where they may have the the, the 60 votes. This is going to need 60 votes in the Senate. You have to get over that filibuster. John Thune's speculating yesterday that he thinks the 60 votes could be there under the right circumstances. There are already a handful of Republicans who have signaled support. There are a couple that have co-sponsored the bill. Um, And again, from states that maybe have already settled this at a state level. And the issue of same-sex marriage just isn't the political controversy that it was even a decade ago, if you look at public polling on this, even if you look at polling among uh, Republican-minded voters, um, it polls much higher today than it did a decade, a decade mm-hmm. and a half ago. 
Um, and so there is, I think, for a lot of lawmakers, a little bit more maybe political cover, if you want to call it that, right. on, on an issue like this. Well, and it's interesting you bring that up because certainly uh, Justice Thomas's musings setting those aside for a moment, Justice Kavanaugh, in his concurring opinion, kind of threw cold water on the idea that he Dobbs said, would open the door. We're not touching anything else. Yeah, yeah. Said, we're not touching and, anything else. And so is this um, really about what they, per- what Democrats perceive as a vulnerability or a a threat, or is this more about trying to paint some vulnerable Republicans into a corner before their uh, primaries and before the midterms? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think there is uh, certainly Democrats have a couple of things, right? They have a base who is outraged that something like uh, the row overturning could happen when Democrats have control of the House, the Senate and, and the um White House. And so they're asking, what are you guys doing about this? And so they're able to point to votes like this and say, here's what we're going to try and do. Um, they've taken a vote last week, for instance, in the House that would have codified Roe v. Wade. Now, that does not have bipartisan support in the Senate. Abortion does not have the same kind of uh, political um, uh, polling. It's much more partisan than, than say, same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. This was also a way uh, to try and input Republicans, maybe some vulnerable Republicans, um, on record. And so they wanted that vote. And again, that's why Republican leadership didn't put out a, a stance on this vote. They said, vote how you want to vote. Yeah. Um, they understand the political nature of it, that there are going to be members who um, have a different view on this than others, uh, a constituency that has a different view on this than other constituencies. And so that's why they've left it open. It was notable yesterday Um Mitch McConnell did his weekly. He does a news conference every Tuesday. So does mm-hmm. Senator Schumer. They both had their news conference yesterday, uh, either right before or right after this bill passed. I don't recall which. I think after the bill passed. And uh, McConnell was asked about it and he didn't weigh in on the actual legislation one way or another. He simply said, let's see how it's handled, how it comes to the floor. I um, mean, to your right. earlier point, there have been now a, a couple of Democrats in the Senate, or a couple of Republicans in the Senate who have said that they would be open to this legislation, again, for a couple of reasons. One, um, by and large, this is sort of settled law, right, the, the, the repeal of the, of the Defense of Marriage Act. Well, we thought um, Roe was too, though, well, and after, again, <laughs> after the confirmation point, hearings. Which is what a lot of Democrats are saying, right? Uh, that's been their answer. when Because some Republicans have dismissed this and said, you know, no one's trying to take away same-sex marriage. Right. You know, and, and Democrats have said, well, that's not true. Like, <laughs> look at what happened in the aftermath of, of abortion. Again, abortion is a different issue than same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. Public polling bears that out. Right. But um, there is a lot sort of behind this this movement of, of Democrats to get the ball rolling. And I think this is an interesting look. If this vote, again, look at, at how voting on this issue of same-sex marriage has changed in, in 20 years, in 15 years. Three innocent bystanders were shot and killed when a gunman opened fire inside a suburban Indianapolis mall before being shot dead himself by a 22-year-old Good Samaritan, Elijah Dickin. James Eisen, Greenwood Chief of Police, briefs the media. The shooter was confronted by our Good Samaritan. Uh, The Good Samaritan was armed with a pistol and engaged the uh, shooter as he stood outside the restroom area firing into the food court. The shooter fired several rounds, striking the suspect. The suspect attempted to retrieve, ba- retreat back into the restroom and fail, fell to the ground after being shot. We recovered 24 223 rifle rounds shot by the suspect and 10 uh, handgun rounds fired by 
the Good Samaritan. His actions were nothing short of heroic. Um, he engaged the, the gunman from quite a distance with a handgun, uh, was very proficient in that, very tactically sound, and as he moved to uh, close in on the suspect, he was also motioning for people to exit behind him. Um, he has, to our knowledge, uh, he has no police training and no uh, military background. The Indiana Mall shooting is just one in a long line of recent mass shootings. Sheriff Mike Bouchard talks about the possible role social media plays in these incidents and how it can be used to possibly prevent future tragedies with Jim Harper and Marie Osborne on the Paul W. Smith Show. When we hear these stories about shootings and massacres, especially the school shooters, then we find out usually within the next day or two that these people have been posting on social media all kinds of scary, threatening posts, pictures of them with guns, uh, you know, manifestos, and, and then the, the average civilian sits back and says, well, why didn't we take this guy in for questioning beforehand, or why didn't somebody do some investigating? And I know there's a practical reason for that as well, but I wanted to ask you, is it possible that we as a culture could kind of get together and agree that when we see these kinds of postings, we report them to law enforcement? Would that be of any help, or... Would we all turn into social media vigilantes? No, it would be a huge help. And you're spot on. That's probably the best way to get in front of people that are about to go off. Um, In almost every one of these circumstances, and I've studied every active shooter around the world going back 20 years, um, because in each one of those instances, typically there's something that I can learn that then we can push into our training to try to be better prepared, to try to uh, prevent, to try to uh, mitigate all of those kinds of things that we learned. For example, after Virginia Tech, you know, where we saw the individual had chained entrance doors on one side of the building where he did his attack and then came in the opposite side. That way it prevented people from fleeing out the other entrance and from help coming in. Um, I ordered bolt cutters to be put into our patrol cars. So you can learn from these things. And one of the things you learn and you spot on is that almost all of them have tipped off what's about to happen to someone, whether it's another student, typically in school shootings, another student or, or someone in the school is in a position to see something that's troubling and they have to share that. Um, or a coworker, if it's an office kind of shooting, um, a coworker has heard comments saying, you know, I'm sick of this. I'm going to come back and I'm going to, you know, shoot our boss in the face or, you know, they say things like that or they post things like that. And that has to be shared. And I'll give you a tangible example of how it makes a difference. We had a, a case where um, a little young person was at the dinner table. This child was at dinner table, um, a kindergartner with their parents having dinner and mentioned that another child had said they were going to bring a gun to school and shoot someone. And the child told their parents and the parents, instead of going, Oh honey, he was just kidding or he shouldn't have said that, but I'm sure he doesn't mean it. They didn't, they didn't minimize it at all. In fact, they escalated it and looped in us and we checked with the school and made a determination to be on the safe side. We're going to check it out as we do every potential threat. 
And we had deputies at the school the next day, and we stopped a kindergartner on the way into school who had a gun. Wow. That's so hard to hear, Mike. Yeah, I never heard that story. And, Mike, um, uh, one of the things that I've noticed about these uh, shooting incidents uh, is, again, this uh, preamble, if you will, on social media that they often will post. Uh, But one of the other things that I've noticed, too, is the issue of bullying and students knowing that this student is on the edge. In other words, people around them knowing that they could break at any minute. One of the things that stands out in my mind is in the shooting in Parkland, um, the shooter there after killing, going on the killing spree, quickly turned around and exited with all the students who were running out of the school as if he was trying to get away as well. And one of his classmates said to him, hey, you're not the shooter, are you? Because they knew that the student had displayed such odd tendencies in the past. So how can we get our kids, especially teenagers and young adults, to say, hey, it's okay for you to tell either mom and dad or maybe one of your teachers or your counselor, it's okay. You're not going to get in trouble. Absolutely. And one of the messages is it's important for you and your friend's safety to share that information and have it checked out. And if there's nothing to it, great. We'd rather check out a thousand nothings than miss one real deal. They'll do it for Pod Sui this week. For full interviews or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.